This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with the next installment in our live Israel tour podcast series. And in particular, returning to our bridge building mini-series. This week, something a little bit different as we start to transition out of the pure bridge building theme and begin introducing some new topics, particularly that of journalism and advocacy. And this week's interview and subject really straddles both of those arenas. Ellie Pillay is the publisher of Mishpacha magazine, and although not strictly speaking the founder, he is about as close to a founder as you can be without actually being one. He started as a distributor, really a delivery boy for the magazine in its very, very early months, and really was the driving force behind transforming it from a small, monthly, localized publication to a global media enterprise since, again, its very early origins. But Eli is not only the publisher of Mishpacha magazine, he is also the founder of the Palais Family Foundation and the Haredi Institute for Public Affairs, which is a fascinating think tank, multidisciplinary and surprisingly multicultural in the sense that it brings together Haredim and secular academics to study Haredi society, this rapidly growing demographic within the broader Israeli society, to explore its unique strengths as well as its challenges, and to offer deeply researched and highly informed position papers and policy proposals in planning strategically for the future of this population and the rest of the population, upon which, of course, it has a massive and growing impact. As you'll hear, Ellie is deeply committed to the notion of bridge building, to inclusivity, to connecting different segments of the population, both with his magazine and family of publications, as well as with this newer venture, his Haredi Institute for Public Affairs a really fascinating character at the center of the drama of Israeli life and a wonderful man who has done a great deal for the Jewish people and for many communities across the state of Israel. Mishpacha, publisher and Haredi Institute of Public Affairs founder and chairman, Eli Palay. We are here with Eli Palay, the publisher of Mishpacha magazine, as well as the founder of the Haredi Institute for Public Affairs. I hope I got all that correct. <laughs> How are you, Eli? Hi, thank you. Good morning. Hey, wonderful. We're here in the beautiful uh, Jerusalem suburb or neighborhood of Ramot, gorgeous area on a, on a gorgeous Jerusalem morning. Uh, Eli, take us back a little bit. Uh, where were you raised? Did you grow up in Israel? Uh, what area? What was your background like? Okay, um, 
So I was uh, born in Yerushalayim. Which neighborhood? In Matersdorf. Oh, wow. Very yeah. religious uh, Very religious, yeah. Sorotskin Street. Yeah. Panim uh, Yerot Street. Panim Yerot before it becomes Sorotskin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I grew up in uh, my family from my father's side. Have an interesting story about their connection to Israel. They came from Lithuania, from Russia. And my great-grandfather, my grandfather, came on the year 1925 wow. to the city of Hebron to establish the first yeshiva, ah. which called at that time Knesset Israel. That was one yes. of the prominent yeshivot in Lithuania. And this is our Zionism about coming to Eretz Israel to establish Torah in Eretz Israel. They stood there till then the year of 1929, till the pogrom in Hebron, and then the Shiva massacre in 1929. Yeah. And was you say your father, your grandfather? Were you? My great grandfather and my grandfather, and his brother. His brother later on became the mashgiach, one of the the teachers in the yeshivat Hebron, in the Hebron yeshiva. So the name of Yeshivat Hebron is the name after the uh, pogrom in, in... Yeah, the original location, yeah. Yeah, in, in uh, Yerushalayim. So I grew what, up... seven people killed in that? Thirty, like? no more. 30, 30, 39, I think. 39 boys, most of them was boys from the Yeshiva. Some of them were boys who came from the United States and other right. places, not just from uh, Russia. So this is my story, my connection yeah. from my father's side to Eretz Yisrael. So I grew up in Yerushalayim. Did your grandfather remember this program? Was it very much? He so. was there. He was very much. So that yeah. was very strong in his uh, identity. And the miracle that we survived was a miracle because my great grandfather, that was one of the rebbeim in yeshiva, was uh, suffering from a very strong asthma. Yeah. And that's why he couldn't be in what we called the safe place. The safe place was the house of the family Slonim in Hebron, which were most of the people gathered to uh, try to uh, rescue. And because it, he couldn't breathe, he, he had to stay in his home. And that's the way that he ended up uh, uh, rescuing. So that, that's the Wow, that's incredible. So your, your family here goes back uh, well before the, the founding of the state. Yeah. And then your mother's family also? Or they were from my mother's family, we're coming, we're Holocaust survivors. survivors. So we're coming from uh, Yugoslavia and Hungary. And just last year, I went with my two boys, Erev Tishabav, to the Holocaust Museum. Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem. A, because I felt that this is the right time, Erev Tisha B'Av is the right time to go there and to go to look back into our, this part of our history. But especially this is our family history. And one of the reasons why we went there was to pick up the testimony that my great-grandmother gave to the Holocaust uh, Museum. It's six and a half hours wow. uh, uh, audio recorded about her story and an amazing the family she's coming from, her father was a rabbi, and the old story, and the shock that I got last year was when I first time learned that my mother, that was at that time two and a half years old when the Holocaust started, uh, with an amazing stories about the miracles that they passed over the, the Holocaust, and my grandmother was an amazing believer that uh, no matter what happened, always she felt that she's having, holding hand with the Kodesh Baruch Hu in all the, the dangerous situation that she passed. But I learned that my mother was already with her mother and her sister on the train to Auschwitz. Really? So this is the first time that I realized that we are really a Holocaust survivors. And the story was, again, another miracle that they were already on the train. The famous trains of 
cattle and, and people are dying, no food, no, no uh, water. And after, I don't know, a day and a half or two days, something happened. It's not clear what exactly happened, what, but uh, the train was breaking to two parts. Wow. I believe that it was maybe partisans or someone that uh, uh, did right, something. Right, yeah, sabotage, yeah. Yeah, sabotage the, the, the train. And the first half of the train continued straight to Auschwitz and from there. And they happened to be in the back. And they happened, happened. Yeah, right. Th that's the real call of yeah. the Hashgacha Pratit. So, uh, so the second half of the train was stuck there for another day and a half, and then people died, didn't have water. But then after a day and a half, they put, I don't know how you call it, the, the, the leader of the train. <laughs> uh, they took them to the other side, and the other side was to Vienna. This is where they stood till the end of the war, and they survived. So oh, really? to learn that we are coming from, that my mother was already a leg and a half on the death on the doorstep in of the death. doorstep yeah. of, of Auschwitz which it's a one-way ticket uh, did your mother know about this herself um, she knew she don't remember she doesn't remember She's, she was very yeah, little, she yeah. was very young but she knew something but I think that for me at least was a point that uh, I learned something about our family that I never, I never That's knew That's an before. amazing story. Yeah. Wow, unbelievable. Wow. So you grew up with all of this history and this, uh, this incredible background. Yes, I grew up with uh, my grandmother that she felt always that she has to fight the big loss uh, of her family and she was so proud in her Jewish heritage and always spoke about the, the, the shtetl, the town, that they, not the village that they lived and, and her father. Uh, and this is the, the model that I grew up with, a grandmother that uh, no matter what happened to her, always she kept being a big believer and always, and Baruch Hashem, she, had a, she lived a very long life. She passed away on, on 95 years old. Wow. Like she, but she saw a big family. Yeah, when grandchildren, she, when grandchildren. She passed, yeah. When she passed away, she, she lost, by the way, she lost a baby by the Holocaust. She, wow. she also got a baby during the war and she lost a baby. So she left with the two girls. My mother's sister, she's the Rebetzin of the Miron, the rabbi of Miron, the oh, chief the, of Miron. The, 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 the uh, mountain Ma Maya Stern, of the Kever of Shimon Bar Yochai, the mountain in the, in the north. She's her sister, so she lost a baby, but she never was bitter. She always was so optimistic and, sh and a big believer. And from these two girls, she raised a family of over 120 grandchildren and countless number that I, I don't even know how many great-grandchildren she has when she, she passed away. So that, that's our Jewish uh, story. Incredible. You know, Hitler took so much, but to think that each person that he couldn't get could then blossom into yeah. this amazing, almost a, a nation by itself, each yeah. of these amazing families. Um, so you grew up with this sense of real, I guess, responsibility to kind of rebuild and to, to grow. and. Uh, what, what did you want to do early on? Did you know that you had a vision to do something big for the Jewish people? So, uh, in my family, the family I grew up with was my father. My grandfather was then later on was the assistant of the chief rabbi of Israel, ah. Rabbi Herzog. Really interesting. And okay. uh, he established one of the first uh, koilalim. Koilalim is the uh, it's a yeshiva for married. People. So he started in Jerusalem together with Rabbi Herzog and Rabbi Herzog's father-in-law, a koilel called Ohel Torah, 
which some of the very prominent Ravonim that we know later on, like Ravosner and Rav Eliashiv, were students in this wow. in this koilel. What year was this? This is going back. So I'm talking about the early the 40s, 50s, 40s, yeah. 50s, yeah, yeah. early 50s. Uh, so so this is the f- my, so my father. Uh, uh, in the early 50s was very much involved in Torah outreach. At that time was the immigrants who came from the uh, Morocco and Yemen, and, and, Yemen yeah. and all these places. And that was one of the big challenges of the Torah society in Israel at that time. Uh, people came here and, and, and the people who, are, who adapt them when they came to Israel felt that they have to change their lifestyle and right. to, to make maybe maybe for their happiness I, I, I want to I want to believe that people did it because of good intention they said okay we want to give you a good future you're coming from such a poor places so maybe if you will lose your your uh, old uh, heritage maybe that will help you to build a new life yeah. but my father at that time uh, uh, was very much involved in going to these places this uh, what we called in Hebrew Ma'abarot, the, the, the small uh, places they the camps yeah. the camps that they, they, they came to and worked very hard to bring those kids to uh, Torah places to yeshivot he himself started some school yeshiva school Torah school for these kids it's an amazing story one of the stories that I just heard to, my father passed away six years ago when but one of the stories that I heard when uh, uh, two years ago I went to be Menachem Ovel, someone was sitting Shiva, um, and uh, it happened to be, it was, it was the sister, the wife of uh, the son of Ovadia Yosef. And when I came to uh, Menachem Avel, so they said to me, you know that my father rescued our life, rescued our life. I said, in what way? And he said, look, I'll tell you the story. He said, we came to one of these camps from, uh, I think, from Morocco, Moroccan. And one day, your father appears in our tent, and he asked my mother, he came with another guy, and he asked my mother, uh, do you have kids? And she said, yes, I have a few, few boys. And he said, and what are they learning? And she started to cry. They took them to a secular schools and they can they're not teaching them Torah. So he said, okay, so we have yeshiva. You can come with me. And with no questions, in a second, she took the blanket, she put all his clothes, the few that he has <laughs> in the blanket, she tied the blanket, she put on her son, and she let him go. And wow. my father took him with him. By the evening, the father comes home and he asks his mother, where is Where's the kid? <laughs> And she said, I don't know, a guy with a nice beard came here and I felt like he's a very special guy. And he asked me, he said that he's willing to take the boy to Torah place and I gave him the kids. And just keep in mind that that day there is no telephone, there is no cell phone, there is no any way. So just after two weeks, that was the first time that the boy came home to find where the boy is. Unbelievable. <laughs> just teach us something about the love of Torah that those people had. And, and for them it was, she's, she would give everything she has just to make sure that her son will continue to be Jewish and continue to keep the, the heritage of the family. So this is the house I grew up. So my father all, and that those years spent all his time and life just to try to help those kids and to save them. And then later on, he became very much involved in helping 
Torah places to open yeshivot. He started the, one of the neighborhoods in Yerushalayim, Harnof was my father's really? initiative. Really? Not from the business perspective. Right. Nor, Too bad. <laughs> no, he did some business also. Business, okay, good. But the idea, was, the idea wasn't business. The idea was that there was a need for, for Torah observant people, Orthodox people, places to live in Yerushalayim. And the municipality planned to make this place to be a place not for Haredi people in uh -huh. purpose. And he decided it has to be for Orthodox people. So what he did, he, in his way, he started to uh, ask people to register if they want to buy an apartment, just open some office. And once he got 100 or 150 people who said we were, were ready to buy, he went to some of the constructors. And he said, are you willing to sell to a group of people an apartment? I said, for sure. Yes. <laughs> Why <laughs> <not>? dream. <laughs> and then he went to one of the uh, secular newspapers in Jerusalem and said, you know, the Haredi were taking over these places and they were very happy to publish it. Once they publish it, so then other oh people... Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> very uh, creative and somewhat devious. <laughs> So, so, so they, and, and the rest was history. He knew, he knew how to play the game in Israel. Yeah. So this is the house I grew up with uh, when we lived in, in Hernov. So our house was always open to uh, help people day and night. My father was the one, one shop center for everything, whoever needs and help. You, you knew that my father is the address to come to, from Rav Noach Weinberg, from Aisha Torah, that he was very close with him. And, and uh, when we were living at the old city, my father was his right hand and helping to gut all the buildings in the old city, including wow. the one next to the Kotel, was my father's uh, work with Rav Noach. Unbelievable. With his connection to the government and with, with his connection uh, 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 to other people. And uh, so our house was always Beit Vad Lechachamim, a place that if you're looking for something for Torah, you're looking for something for help and give a chesed, a, a givenness, so you should come to my father. Uh, so just another story, when we left the, the Harnov, when we lived in Harnov, so uh, one day a prominent Rosh Yeshiva came to my father and he said that uh, his name was Rav Moshe Shmuel Shapiro, was Rosh Yeshiva of Be'er Yaakov was yeah. one of the really prominent and, and elderly Rosh Yeshivas. And at that time he had to leave uh, the original place. He went to Jerusalem, he rent some building, and then after a while he had to leave. And uh, he didn't find a new place to stay. So uh, they brought trucks, put everything on the truck, and then they come, they ask, so, so he asked someone, what should they do? He said, go to Yudke. Yudke was the nickname of my father. He came to my father. He didn't know my father before. He came to my father and he asked him uh, for advice. Do you, do you know an idea? Where, where should I go with right. my yeshiva? And my father, that was always his answer, said, what's the problem? I have a building. I just finished to build now a building. And the first two floors, I didn't sell them yet. So tomorrow morning, I'm going to bring the workers to broke the walls. The first building will be the Beit Midrash, the, the yeshiva. The second will be the, the dining room. And the next day, that's what happened. So the yeshiva, so my father's building became the temporary place for this yeshiva. Oh so, so this is where I grew up. Yeah, I'm sorry uh, I didn't meet you six years ago. I could have met uh, <laughs> your father. Sounds yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, or another story that uh, uh, another prominent rov that was in touch with my father in early 50s and with the Yamanai community. So he came to Harnov. He was looking for a place to stay. He had a small koilel, a small place for uh, yeshiva for married people. 
and he didn't find a place. So I asked my father, do you have any idea where can I have, I have like 10, 15 people, do you have any idea where can I, where can I stay? And my father said, what's the problem? I have a basement in my house and you can use the basement for your yeshiva. And the next morning, my mother walks up and she finds that <laughs> downstairs there is a whole school. <laughs> there is a whole school in, 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 basement. in our house. Yeah. So this is, uh, so uh, I think this is the way I grew up in, in big love of Torah and big love of, of giving and helping people. And uh, when I was in yeshiva, I learned in uh, Hebron yeshiva. You had to pray. Yeah, I had to. <laughs> yeah. my, my son was the fifth generation. Wow. My son. Uh, he's married, was the fifth generation in this yeshiva, so this is our uh, uh, family yeshiva. Uh, I knew that I really wanted to continue to learn, that was my big love. Till today, my big love is to sit and, and to learn Torah. Uh, I'm starting my day with the Chavrusa and, and I'm ending my day with learning with my little son, Yishai. Ah. Uh, so this is my daily schedule, to sit and to <laughs> the learn. The book ends every yeah, day. Yeah. Uh, he is going to become a bar mitzvah soon, and uh, in two months from now, and wow. we are now about to finish Shisha Sidrei Mishnah. Wow, the entire Mishnah. The entire wow. Mishnah. We finished uh, five Zorim. We are now in the middle of Seder Taharot, the last one. That's hard. Wow. But for me, that's the joy of the day, to know that I am coming home after a very long and intensive day, and I can sit with my son and continue to do what my father did with me and what his father did with him. This is for me such a blessing and such a... Uh, so, so that was my big love when I was in yeshiva. And uh, when I was in yeshiva, I wanted to continue to learn after I got married. I got married and I wanted to continue to learn. My wife just started her college to be a psychologist and I wanted to learn in yeshiva. The problem was that in our yeshiva, they didn't pay scholarship for students. There's no money. And I said, I don't care. But I want uh, this is the place I want to learn, this is my love, I'll do it. And then a few months after I started uh, uh, to learn in yeshiva, uh, I was approached to get some side job. And someone asked me if I'm willing maybe to do some distribution for a magazine. <laughs> and I had an old car that days called Susita, it was an Israeli old car. <laughs> And uh, I said, for sure, yes, why not? I was looking for some... Uh, right, make some, some money, some, yeah. Make some money. So uh, I agreed. And, uh, and then since then, I started to work three days a month. took me to work as the distributor of Mishpacha magazine, which ah. today became an international huge publication. So it already existed. It just started. Just started. It started, I think, probably, HaKadosh Baruch Hu make it to start so I will have a way to make a living. So it started like two months before I started to work for this publication. At that time, it was very small. Uh, it was a monthly publication that uh, very small. The first step that they did in this business. So that was my first job. To Once a month, I went to the printer, picked up the magazine, went to the stores, carry the magazine, bring them to the stores, and took me like a day and a half, a very intensive work just yeah. to carry the magazine and to bring it to the stores. And then the rest of the months, I was taking my free time, like noontime and Fridays, to go to collect money and to take returns. So altogether, I had to spend like three days of work and I was free for the rest of the months to, continue, <laughs> to continue to do my big love. And I was earning at that time twice as much as someone who got scholarship from, from yeshiva 
and I was able to be... That's from the three days of work. Yeah. Three days of work. That's a good return. <laughs> yeah. So this is how my story led me to get involved in, in the publication business. And then a year later, they, uh, asked, the publisher asked my father if he wants to invest in this publication. So your son is working there, so would you mind maybe to invest some small and money? your father was a businessman also, in addition to... Yeah, yeah. he was a businessman. Uh, it wasn't clear by him when he's doing business and when he's doing uh, to help people, because for him, it was never clear. Right. But again, even this decision wasn't exactly a business decision. The guy started servicing, and my father always loved to help people. He said, oh, you know what? I'll just tell you a story. When my father had a custom, whenever someone opened a new store in our neighborhood, yeah. so always, no matter what kind of store, it was a shoe store, it was a, a grocery store, whatever, so he used to go and to do the first shopping there. He, he would be the first customer. Someone is doing a business, so help him. Wow. So, so I believe that even my father's decision to so-called invest, it right. wasn't... He wasn't expecting to get wealthy from this no. little magazine, yeah. It wasn't, it was, he didn't even consider it as a real business, you know. But he said, you know, my son is working, the guy is starting something, so I'll put some money, help him out. And then once my father got involved, so uh, the guy that uh, uh, sold the magazine to my father said, you know, but someone needs to run the business. <laughs> so maybe your son, uh, he's already in the business, can do he's it. He's already driving around, he might as well yeah, run it. And, and by the way, I was very upset because that wasn't my dream. My and dream was to, learn, to, right? to sit and learn, especially I was very young at that, that years. But, you know, if my father is already involved, so it's funny. So my father invests money maybe to help his son. He said, my son is working, maybe there can be a business for him. I did something, I said, if my father invests money, I don't want my, my father's money to get lost, so I'll have to do something to support my father's investment. And all of a sudden, I find myself <laughs> uh, into it. That was a funny story because, again, as I said, it wasn't my intention. I did it because I had to. Uh, and then after I started to work, I had to go to the army because in Israel, sure. you, can't, you can't work if you're not going to the army. So I went to the army for four months. I served with the army. And my wife started to work for the publication and we find some other uh, guy that uh, was running the office. And then when I finished the army, I said, oh, it's fantastic. They're managing very well without me. So I went back to yeshiva, to back to my big love. And just a year later, I came, uh, I, I had to get to, to go back to they the needed help. to the public. They needed help, there was some crisis there. And since there was three decades, uh, almost three decades that I'm uh, in Mishpacha. So in one word, so what led me, as I said, I never planned. You asked me, what was your vision? So I said, the, the background is a family that always felt that care about Am Israel, care about Torah, care about helping people. So when I got into this job, for sure, I felt that my job is not the business, it's the mission. And the yeah. mission of Mishpacha became to become a publication to united the people, the Jewish people, mm -hmm. the Torah observant people around one publication that wasn't a given in the Israeli society. Mm -hmm. There days. used to be different publications that would... Because, yeah, especially in the Orthodox, uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, society in Israel, so the concept was that every group Every party needs to have their own publication because the publication should reflect their vision, their, their, their lifestyle. And we were the first one that created an inclusive publication that uh, Sephardi and Ashkenazi and Hasidic and Lithuanian can share the same publication that was happened 
Later on, I understood that that was a big uh, initiative. I felt naively that that's the way that it should that's be done. Like, that was obvious this is, to you. This is the house I grew up but in. In our family, was never an issue about uh, uh, different segments. We we always welcomed all kind of people. Uh, yeah. Uh, but that's over over time. That's what we became part of the brand of Mishpacha. To became a publication who, who, who cares uh, about our society, who very much social oriented uh, publication who is trying to inspire the society, but at the same time also to have the courage to address serious issues, social issues, flaws and challenges in the community. Challenges in the community, always in a sensitive way, or never, never in in a, in a very sensational, I, I know, sensational way. But that was part of our challenge. Mm -hmm. Not always uh, uh, the establishment like what we. I was going to ask that you get a lot of pushback yeah, from absolutely. different groups because when you're trying to be inclusive for everyone. That means everyone's going to be a little bit upset. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and sometimes what it was even big campaigns to, uh, against us. Sometimes people went to a big rabbonim and was trying to say, you know, see how Mishpacha can give respect to this Rav. And we know that this Rav have a different Ashkafa, but we always stick in our, in our uh, uh, mission. And always, that was the funny part, by the way, that always, it was very easy to go to Rabonim and to say, listen, he's not exactly in our, in the way of, the, the, our way, in our vision, and it's dangerous because, you know, it's a free publication, who, who control it. But whenever, when such a campaign happened, we went directly to speak to the leaders, including Rav Eliyashim and including Rav Wozner and all the Rav Nisim Karelitz, it all was a surprise because A, my father was very well known. So when they find that uh, my father is son, behind, right? that he's, he's behind, but always uh, we worked with the guidance of Talmudei Chachamin and Rabbanim. So yes, we try to do our work in a way that we will challenge our society, but always it was done with the consulting of Talmudei Chachamim. So the surprise was always when we went directly to speak to Rabboni, said, so what's the problem? I said, I don't know, people said that the Rov has some problems. I said, no, I, I was told that, right. that there is... They so were just so going on with so propaganda. So, so Baruch Hashem, uh, and, and, and again, this is all, always, I think the story of Mishpacha is a combination of taking a mission and at the end of the day, if you're doing your mission right, the business is also working yeah. right. So Bishpacha became today the biggest publication in the Jewish world. We have a, a, a Hebrew edition, an international uh, English edition. We're also doing something now in Spanish, ah. trying to touch also this society. Again, part of our mission. But I think for me, it's a big lesson that if you want to do right business, do it right. Mm. Don't think about the business. Think about it from the Jewish perspective, what's the right way to do a business? What's the right way to address different issues? Yeah. Always did, you have to do it under the halachic guidance. Always you have to do it under the, the responsibility of Torah life. Right. And once you will do it in the right way from the Torah perspective, the business will benefit as well. Uh, so that, that's... How many subscribers are there now? Today we have, we have around 60,000 households, uh, copies. Uh, Is that the Hebrew or the English? Hebrew and English a week. Over holidays comes up to over 80,000 copies. We are reaching today around half a million Jewish people around the world. But the beauty of Mishpacha is that we spoke about uh, being inclusive. So when we started 14 years ago, the English edition. So the I was going to ask you how, when that started and how. So that was started in, in the year 2004. I felt that Mishpacha uh, has such a voice 
uh, and we, we, we succeed so much in, in creating unity in the Torah society in Israel. And he said, okay, it's about time to take this voice. I was approached by many people asking us why you are not doing something like this for the American people. At the beginning, I said, but what do I know about America? <laughs> I am an Israeli, grew up in Israel, learned in, in Heider. Heider is the, is the very ultra-Orthodox uh, yeshiva. Uh, uh, so what I know about uh, th these people, but again, the mission drove me. When I felt there is a need for it, I started to study the market. And again, that's the miracle that we have today so such a diversity of readership around yeah. the world. And But you find at the end of the way, they're sharing the same values. Yes, there is some nuances in each, each community, but I think that the success of Mishpacha, that we are finding to how to touch the, the, the Jewish DNA in a way that everybody can respect and everybody can learn from meeting the other part or, or another segment in, in the Torah society. And for me, that's the miracle. The miracle of Mishpacha is that we became the place that I always telling people there is no protocols of the elderly of Mishpacha. <laughs> there is no any, any genius behind it. Mishpacha became a welcoming place that the staff of Mishpacha, we have uh, close to 250 people working wow. for our publication around the globe. Most of them sits in the headquarters in Jerusalem, but we have people uh, all around the world, contributors and writers and deputy editors, that uh, all the people who came to work for Mishpacha were the people who are sharing the same vision of trying to do good for the Jewish people, trying to be responsible, trying to express the love of Torah in, in our days yeah. and to see yet yeah, Torah is relevant, Torah lifestyle is relevant to our days and part of being uh, living in the way of Torah is that you have to challenge yourself, you have to deal with the serious issues, don't try to, to hide them and don't try to underestimate when there is challenges but always has to be done with the halachic guidance on one hand with consulting with Talmidei Chachamim, scholars from the Torah world because we understand the responsibility of a publication. It's not just about doing business. Right. It's about influencing people. It's about really touching people in places. And there is always dilemma. There are always questions about issues, sensitive issues, how to deal with these issues. And always we, are, we feel that we have to get yeah. the, the... And I think I'm, I was involved. I was in the presidential of the Israeli uh, Journalist Council. And always they brought our model of journalism as also a model of journalism today because the journalists felt that they have such a power in their hands and they can do whatever they want to do. And for them to see that with the power that we have as a media, that we are modest enough to take the supervision of Talmidei Chachamim and to know that when comes a serious decision with all the power you have in your hand, the way that we grew up in the Torah life is that always you have to go and to ask Talmudei Chachamim and, and to ask a question, no matter how, power, how much power you have in your hands, I think this is again a model that people start to appreciate and said, okay, that's also interesting. There is something in the Torah life that maybe even with all the Western modern uh, values that we have, have some added value that can be, yeah. can, can be adapted. It's interesting because the English edition, as you said, when you, when you opened it up, you didn't just translate the Hebrew edition. It's a completely different yeah. magazine. Was that a, a difficult decision? Did, did you go back and forth on what to do? Or was it obvious to you that the English would be a completely different magazine? 
No, the, I knew from day one when I started, that was part of my marketing study when, by the preparation of doing this edition, that I, I, I won't be able just to take the Hebrew and, and, and just to write it in English because the publication is more than just the language. It's, it's, it's about culture, it's about ah. lifestyle, it's about other issues. But we did it very naturally because when we started, I think that 80% of the publication was translated ah, and 20% okay. were original. So and slow slowly, slowly, <laughs> slowly, slowly, we learned the market. And now, today, I'm so proud that, that there is a mutual relationship between the publications. Sometimes the scoop, the good story started with the English, and then the Hebrew edition is adapting it, and start, sometimes with English. But you're absolutely right that, that today the two publications, they are sharing the same DNA, the same voice of Mishpacha, but each of them is expressing this voice in, in a way that's relevant to the, to right. the, to the, to the re relevant market. How active are you still in the magazine on a regular basis? You have editors and executive editors and yes. 250 people, uh, yes. you know, so, all these publications. So, so. Yeah, so for over 25 years, uh, uh, almost 25 years, I was everything in the magazine. As I said, I started as a distributor. <laughs> You're driving so around. I did, I did all the jobs uh, 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 and that was part of my experience. But uh, uh, today I'm functioning as the chairman of the, of the media group, of the publication which my main involvement is to continue the vision, to continue the development of the publication. We're now planning to go very seriously uh, uh, digital right. with the publication, and that's part of our vision, not, again, not part of the business, because we didn't find yet a business model for the, for the digital part. Right, I think a lot, most newspapers have not found it. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and Baruch Hashem, thanks God, were so successful in the print edition, and uh, that, that's, that's also not a given in, in the media right. print. Uh, I uh, think today. Shabbat has saved uh, the Shabbat, absolutely. Jewish publications Shab Shabbat, print. Yeah, Shabbat, yes. So the, the fact that the, the religious people uh, can't use, and they're not using any electronic devices and anything over Shabbat, uh, so gives us a big opportunity, and also at the same time, big responsibility, because if you know that you are the entertainment of Shabbat, ah. it also has to be taken into consideration sometimes, the way that you will tell a story, or maybe the, what to put or not to put on the cover is relevant to us, but this is the way that the Shabbat table ah. or the Shabbat will look like, and sometimes it's our consideration uh, uh, to, keep it, to keep it in mind. So that over the, the past 25 years, that was my, my work, and as I said, today I'm mainly involved in the development. By the way, the reason why we decided to go uh, digital is, again, because of the mission of Mishpacha. We felt that today Mishpacha is serving such an important role in the society, bringing the Torah lifestyle uh, in reality to the people, not just to the Frum people. I'm getting so many feedback from people that they are traditional people, people are looking to learn or to know more about the Jewish life. And it's interesting because someone goes to a, I don't know to outreach seminar to Shabbaton and he learned about Judaism and he can get all the theoretical knowledge about Torah and about uh, uh, God and everything. But then comes the real challenge when someone wants to change his life, and then comes the questions: How their day-to-day -day life looks like, couplehood, raising kids, and all these issues. Sometimes Balei Tshuva, people are coming from outside to the Torah world are very challenged in this part of life because they have no, they, they, they never saw any model of the reality, how the life looks like. And I'm getting from people, people who are dealing with outreach and people who are doing the first steps in getting into 
Jewish life, saying, you know that Mishpacha was my, my mentor, my window to, to see the real, how the real life looks like. How to be, re even, even recipes, you know, you want, you want to make Shabbos. Do you have any idea how should I make Shabbos? So I felt, I, I'm, I, I feel that this is part of our voice and mission today. And th that's why we decided that today it's not enough that we are successful in the print media. We have to make sure that our voice will be heard to the, every relevant Jew around the world. And I believe that this is hopefully as we, I saw in our history in the business, that it will turn to be a business, but we are, we are able today with our media to invest also in doing something good for the society. Right. So this is the, our direction now in going uh, online. And, uh, but you did mention that you've taken a bit of a step back in terms of your day-to-day -day management. So what have you done to fill that <laughs> void, to fill that time? Uh, yeah, so, so I, I decided to take a step back because I wanted to, to do more uh, for the public. Again, I believe this is part of the mission of our group. Uh, so when my father passed away, like almost six years ago, uh, I decided to spend most of the time to continue his heritage and to continue what my father did in my way. Me and my father are, are operating in a very different way. I can't even imitate my father's uh, 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 very creative and, and, and spontaneous way. It sounds like he was a product of his time. <laughs> yeah, uh, no question. You know, the time no, where you no had question to about do whatever you could to get but by. The passion, but the yeah. passion that I got from my father. And, and, and uh, so I decided to start to uh, put most of my time to serve the, the society to do for the, the Jewish people. And I started a family foundation on my father's memory. Mm. And today I'm uh, the chairman of this uh, family foundation, the Pele Family Foundation, which focuses mainly on the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi society in Israel. I felt beside doing the traditional charity and my father's uh, traditional uh, chesed and, and givenness. So I felt that there is a need for uh, a strategic a way to address the challenges of the uh, Haredi society in Israel. There is a big tension today between the secular and the ultra-orthodox society in Israel. And me as someone who grew up in the Haredi society, who, who is in love with the Haredi, Haredi the ultra-orthodox society in Israel, feel that there is such a big gap and, and misunderstanding about the opportunities that exist in this society. So I felt that our goal, our job will be to create a think tank, a place with the, uh, a, knowledge, a knowledge center with all the database about the, the ultra-Orthodox society in Israel. We're talking today about society that it's already 12% of the uh, Israel population. Haredi used to be a very small minority in Israel but today it's becoming a, a significant uh, percentage of the Israeli population. The forecast for 20, 30 years from now, we are talking about 20, 25% of the Israeli population are going to be ultra-Orthodox, and that's required a strategic planning because people understand that Haredi, over the years, the, the Haredi society uh, uh, on purpose wanted to be a little bit isolated from the entire Israeli society. That's what part of their strategy of to build and to keep their, their identity in, in a very challenging days. But it's about time that A, 
we have to understand that we are not anymore a small minority. We have to play a role in the Jewish peoplehood. Haredi people are part, not just on the, on, on the part of the Israeli economy, part of the Jewish society. Yeah. And that's today uh, the challenge that we are trying to bring in our, uh, 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 in the new think tank, the Haredi Institute for Public Affairs. And the idea in general is to try, hey, to help the government and the decision makers to understand better the data to know what are we facing with what are the challenges what are the numbers that which affecting any aspect of our lives economy security education society and etc and more importantly to provide policy papers to the decision makers both in the government and in the Torah society the Haredi society how we can create a win-win situation that those two societies will benefit from each other, I believe, uh, uh, I'm convinced that there is a huge potential in the human capital in the Haredi, in the Torah society, that for some, many reasons, mainly from big misunderstandings and some obstacles, that it's not coming to the best effective way of contributing to the uh, Israeli society. And today we're becoming the address for the government. We're doing big projects with the government of Israel, uh, uh, the housing ministry, the education ministry, the treasury ministry, uh, and others. And at the same time, we're working with the leaders from the Haredi society, understanding that also for them, it's about time to change from just dealing with trying to uh, put the fires or to uh, try to do some political agreement and to so you're come. moving from just kind of a, a place of pragmatism and a place of kind of crisis management to really forward thinking, strategic planning, proactively trying to uh, figure out how to best <clears throat> leverage this, this tremendous and growing, rapidly growing segment of the population. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Again, as, as you saw already in our discussion, for me, always the doing things in the right way at the end of the day it's ending up to be also the way that makes the business so-called right. uh, so-called work so the fact that the that the governmental office after four years of our uh, uh, starting our think tank at the beginning they were very suspicious sure Haredim wants to think strategically it's it's a contradiction <laughs> Haredim is strategic uh, so maybe it's another way of Haredim maybe to do Haredi advocacy maybe you want to try to get some right. budgets but when they felt and today we have over 20 people working for uh, the think tank and and the beauty of the place is that it's again it's a diversity of secular people and from people working together we have ah, you have secular people in the we have think tank the think tank is based on people from variety of uh, disciplines so the, the vice chairman it's it's a secular lady that was one of the top people in the israel bank uh, she started the the research department of the labor in the israel bank and she's today again a secular lady she's the vice chairman of the wow. think tank we have a, a senior professor from tel aviv university that's expert in law and, and taxes we have a, a professor who is expert in statistics a Russian, again, secular <laughs> researcher. And the beauty is to see secular and from people working together for the sake and for the good of the Jewish people. That's the beauty of, uh, of wow. our work. And that's always, again, on the only way we can really get to the real picture because once 
all these people sitting together. So it's not just our voice or their voice. We're sitting together trying to see what's the best way that everybody can benefit from it. So right. every plan we're doing today, A, the knowledge is really a very deep knowledge because you have top people from all all fields of, of the academia and, and the field. We have, together with the secular academic uh, people, we have also uh, Haredi researchers and we have Haredi fellows who are coming from the field. The, the vice mayor, deputy mayor of Jerusalem, Yitzhak Pindrus, is one of the executive uh, board members of uh, Think Tank and is an active fellow. And he's a guy who has 25 years experience in running operations. He was a mayor of a city of Beitar, running operations already well. So, so working together with people that have the experience and the knowledge and the sensitivity, understanding where are can be issues that can maybe something won't work because there is some sensitivity that you have to be aware on and they have the knowledge and you have the people who have the the macro uh, policy experience working with the israel bank and working with universities i think that's create a, a very rich policy papers that uh, well like Mishpacha, have you gotten pushback from within the community on this you know sitting together with Secular people and uh, no, uh, surprisingly not. But we, we were very careful, and and we did two things. First, we decided from day one that the think tank is not going to deal with anything that has to do with religious and state. Mm. Meaning, we are we call the Haredi think tank, but we are really a place to deal with economy, society, and we are not coming to deal with anything that has to do with agenda that can be maybe controversial. And at the same time, we decided not to deal with issues, uh, as of today, with issues in the Haredi society that there, there, again, there is some, some disagreement about them. So meaning we won't come to the educational system and said, okay, we have an idea, how can you improve your system? Each of us can maybe think differently about the way that the educational system should be, but we, we don't see that this is our role. We are dealing today with education in the places that we really can contribute. So we believe that education should be decided by the leaders and by the people that this is their expertise. And with all due respect to Eli Palay and his people, we have to leave it to the people who have the, the, the knowledge and the experience. But when it comes to the questions of infrastructures, when it comes to issues of vocational training, we're not doing a big project with the Haredi uh, uh, seminaries. Haredi seminaries is the post high school like similar to a college that uh, uh, almost all the Haredi girls are having two years after high school that they are used to be trained to be teachers, moros, and now everybody understands that, 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 <laughs> that, that there is a need to much more. So this is exactly a place that we felt we are not dealing with the, with the core issues of education because this is not our mandatory, but we are providing knowledge and understanding about where the, f the work field, the trends are going in the, in the upcoming years. So we have top experts who are dealing together with Mechanchim, together with Rabbanim, together with the governmental representatives to work together to create uh, uh, plans that will enhance the girls, the society, and the Israel uh, macroeconomy. Beautiful. And uh, I, uh, so much more I want to ask because <laughs> we're just running out of time. It's, it's fascinating. Um, I guess, t tell me, first of all, where can people learn about this institute and read about the studies that have been done and, and sort of the policy papers? So it's, uh, there is online access. Uh, today, most of the materials are still in Hebrew. We have some, some, some of the materials translated to English. 
uh, two that I would recommend will be, first the address is www.machon.org.il. Machon, uh, M-A-C-H-O-N. Yeah, and so you, you can see some of the materials. Two materials that I would recommend to people to see, one is a huge study that we just, a few months ago we finished, was about quality of life in Israeli societies. That was done by our vice chairman and, uh, and the former scientist of the Israeli Statistics Department, uh, which covers, and that's again unique in the work we are doing, not just about the Haredi society, it gives an overview about the Israeli society as a ah. whole, divided to two subgroups, the Haredi, the Jewish non-Haredi society, and the Arab society. Ah. So that's really... It was again uh, very surprising to see that the Haredi think tank is cares to yes. to show the big picture You're of Israel. You're giving value in so, that way as well. Yeah. So I believe that people can really benefit from this study because that gives you a very in-depth overview about all societies in Israel, but with a lot of explanation, verbal explanation about some of the of the different uh, results in the Haredi society, which can understand, which can help people understand better Haredi society specifically. One of the things that you should see in this study, and also you can find online in the study, is about, it used to, based on the Israeli regular statistics, they are claiming that over 50% of the ultra-Orthodox society in Israel are under the, the poverty, poverty line. line right. Poverty line, That's very famous, yes. and everybody speaks about it. And our vice chairman, her expertise in the Israel Bank was poverty. She was involved in the governmental, the big governmental committees. And she did a big study, which I warmly recommend to read, about what considered to be Haredi poverty and the reality. And the reality, there is such a big difference. I'll just give you one example and we have to finish. But understanding through this the real lifestyle of the Haredi society and, and understanding the need, why there is a need for a very a different approach to understand the Haredi economy and lifestyle. So again, as I said, officially over 50% of the Haredi are considered to be under the poverty line. But interestingly, when you're asking Haredi in a different survey, did you ever felt a sense of poverty? Only 8% of the Haredi people, only 8%, meaning over 80% of the people who are considered to be poor have no idea what you're talking. If you're asking Haredi people, are you happy with your economy situation income, 71% of the Haredi people saying that we are very satisfied with our economy situation versus 63% of the Jewish non-Haredi population in Israel. So that shows you that there is some misunderstanding about, not just about the subjective way that Haredi are happy, Mr. Pek Bemuat, some Jewish values about uh, modesty and how to be always happy, it also shows that you have to understand that there is a different economy in the Haredi society. And in order to understand it, I recommend to people to read this study, study, which will help you. I'll just conclude by saying that uh, one of our board members, Jeff Schwartz, used to be sure. the... In Timberland. In Timberland, yeah, ah, was the, yeah, so he's on our board. And when I showed him the study about the Haredi, the poverty, uh, I showed him that it was, the study was in Hebrew and was an, we had an abstract in, uh, in English. And he said, Eli, it's not for abstract. I need the full study to be translated to English because I want Bill Gates to read it. It's not just about 
understanding some nuances. It's really understanding a different culture because poverty has definitions. Poverty has some ramification and everything that we used to know about poverty is becoming almost irrelevant for the Haredi society. Poor people usually are in the lowest level of the, of the recognition of the society, Haredi society. If you are poor, it could be that you will be in the highest level. <laughs> because you are, and so on and Subsisting, so on. Subsisting, yeah. Unbelievable. So much there to dig into and explore. Again, we could, I could go on for hours just trying to understand more about what you're, what you're exploring and what you're ultimately advocating. But uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. But Eli Pillay, publisher of Mishpacha magazine, founder of the Haredi Institute of Public Affairs, activist, lover of Jews, uh, inheritor of a beautiful heritage, and perpetrator of that very same heritage. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you very much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.